Hey guys, it's Doe and you're listening to the True Tunes Podcast. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, I catch up with Doe, aka Dominique Jones, to hear her inspiring story of family, faith, musical experimentation, and left-handed living in a right-handed world. This contemporary gospel soul artist just recently released her debut album, Clarity, but if it sounds like her rich, interesting, and diverse sound is far too developed to come from a new artist, it might be because she has been at this for over a decade. Doe, who I first got to know when I worked with her family's band Forever Jones during my years at Capital CMG Publishing, has hit the number one spot on the gospel airplay charts with her first two singles. Last year's collaboration with Travis Green, Good and Loved, was her first number one. And her latest single, Brighter, rocketed up to that spot as well. You turn on the truth in me. You light up my heart with possibilities. I'm getting everything I need. Cause you're giving everything to me. You are forever in my destiny. Woven into it like a tapestry. Your love is everything to me. Cause you're giving everything I need. And Doe is just getting started. All of the songs on her debut album are either written by her alone or with collaborators like Matt Marr, Ethan Hulse, Israel Houghton, and Jonathan McReynolds. McReynolds, in fact, released the album on his new Life Room label, Imprint. He has obviously moved contemporary gospel music into a very fresh place with his own music, and now he has Doe out there shaping things as well. To my ears, at least, she sounds like the kind of artist who could further impact the mainstream contemporary soul world in some really exciting ways. Later in the show, I invite our friend, the legendary drummer Aaron A. Train Smith, to revisit Stevie Wonder's world-changing albums of the 70s. His five-album cycle, which includes Music of My Mind and Talking Book from 72, Inner Visions from 73, Fulfillingness's first finale in 74, and his magnum opus, the double album Songs in the Key of Life in 1976, impacted rock, soul, R&B, and even gospel music. A-Train was drumming for The Temptations and other Motown acts during those days and has a fascinating insider's view on Wonder's incredibly important output of that era. Very the grooving starts right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. We're back with the True Tunes Podcast. Teach my heart to read 
Dominique Jones, welcome to the True Tunes podcast. It is so great to see you again. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You've been doing this for a long time. Tell me, just kind of give me the highlights of the background. You kind of had an interesting childhood, didn't you? Yeah. So I started out with my family. Uh, we sound to signed to EMI Gospel, which is now Motown Gospel, which you met us there. Probably around 2018, I really decided to jump off and really go for um, this individual thing that I felt like God was calling me to do. Um, I was a youth pastor in Shreveport, Louisiana. I had three college degrees, but I just was like, I'm never going to ever ask permission to leave town again. So I didn't want to get a nine to five, you know, job or have a boss really actually so i got my uber license and um i just was like whatever i need to do (laughs) to make this work and even the high school i went to you know they were really big on that that no job was lower than the other that um anything that anywhere you worked uh was an honorable you know place i mean obviously as long as it's safe to the person and everyone else i was just like i'm gonna do this and god held up his end of the deal uh there were things that i was believing that were going to happen for me and they did you know i think about how there were pastors that i knew growing up that now pastor huge churches and they knew i could lead worship and so they called me and they'd be like hey can you come in hey can you come do this um even you know being on jonathan's uh on cycles featuring with him and then israel calling me out of nowhere and being like hey you know, I saw your I saw your uh, cover of my song, and I really would love to do that version of my album if you if you'd be a part. And I was like, what? Wow. And then you know, the Maverick reaching out, um, and all of these things just came through what would seem to other people like random doors, but you know, it was just God. You just drop the fact that you have three college degrees. You just kind of pass over. It's like, (laughs) tell me about that. Because you've invested a lot in yourself for a long time. So let's rewind the tape a little bit back. Tell me about the college degrees, the working at the church, and then even, you know, we'll get into the music part next. First of all, I struggled kind of in school. I struggled to focus and, and we traveled as a family. So that was a whole other dynamic. I struggled so much that I was like, man, When I get out of here, I'm going to try to go to college and everybody's going to find out that I'm a failure, you know. So for me to have finished three times is a big was a big deal for me. I got my associates in general studies and then I went to Full Sail University and got my bachelor's in music business. I went back to Full Sail and got my master's in creative writing, which is a. more so the art of storytelling than it is. It doesn't have anything to do with music, actually. Uh, well, except it makes you a better songwriter, probably. I, I think, <laughs> I it, made think. Me, yeah. it made me a better writer. Yeah. I didn't realize that I loved writing and that I, um, I had a gift there. It forced me to be more descriptive. My thesis was a screenplay. It was a 92-page screenplay that will never see the light of day ever again. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was really good for me. And I'm, I'm like, I'm really thankful that I did that. I felt like it was something I needed to do. And then having all those years of traveling and doing music with your parents and your siblings. 
that certainly was experience that you are able to call upon. Absolutely. Um, You know, I will say this, even though I got my degree in music business, I know that going to school really taught me how to research and to find the answers that I need. And I'm really glad that I went. Finally, the right side up. Yeah, I was looking down for a minute. I admit it. But it's hard to see the sky from the forest when you're in it. I, I finally made my right mind up. I was in the middle, so afraid of decision. I was losing power by the minute. Let's talk about you as a musician. You, you are a really accomplished musician with a very interesting style. I remember the first time I saw you pick up the guitar, I'm like, oh, well, she, she, she's obviously not a guitar player because she just picked up a right-handed guitar and flipped it upside down. And, and then you start playing, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, wow. So tell me this story. You've, got a, you've had a really interesting path as a, as a musician. I- You know, I would not say accomplished just because I grew up around so many great musicians. I can play my stuff. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, but but you're you're getting somewhere with this stuff and you've got to you're not just someone that basically strums a couple chords like you've got a technique and it's part it's woven into your artistry. So tell me how you evolved as a musician. Um, I grew up around musicians in my family, male and female musicians. And they were really great at their craft. And then my dad really pushed us uh, kids to to towards our passion, towards music. And um, I think I'm left-handed and I, left-handed people subconsciously are constantly flipping the world around to so that it'll make sense to them because we live in this right-handed world. So it did not occur to me sitting across from my sister mirroring her on the guitar that we were holding it different. Also, in my mind, I was like, well, of course, the big string goes on the bottom. Like, what are we talking about here? Nobody challenged that thought. And, I, and my mother was giving advice for me as a child to allow me to learn the way that I learn and don't try to fix every little thing that I do different. So she didn't tell me that I was playing upside down. So when I got to Louisiana and started making all these friends who were guitar players, they'd pass me the guitar and I would. You know, and they'd be like, no, you, and they'd try to flip it. And I'd be like, no, 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 (laughs) (laughs) this is how I play. It kind of forces a couple of interesting things because as I recall, and it's been a while since I've seen you in person, but you even, um, you kind of strum upwards because that low note is at the, as at the bottom. So you've developed (laughs) a, a sort of finger style that, that is upside down as well as backwards, but there's mm-hmm. something foundationally just very cool about your approach. Um, is that all just by feel or did somebody ever kind of teach you some of those fingering techniques and the chord voicings and stuff like that? No, it was it was all by feel. And, you know, I have to say I played p- piano before I played guitar. So I knew how to put chords together, uh, even though the scale was way different than a piano scale. I could kind of see in my mind. So I kind of learned how to put chords together that way and started using my thumb. And You had mentioned something about the quality of an instrument and, and uh, that, that it inspired you, that something about playing a really good guitar actually 
impacted how you were playing? I think at one point I heard you say that you thought it made you a better guitar player, but then do you feel like having really excellent instruments is, is different? Does it actually shape or move how you work as a, as a musician? Do you know, having a nice guitar does make me feel like a superhero. Absolutely. It does because the tone is right. And if you have a really nice guitar, it doesn't go in and out of tune very easily. It's, Mm -hmm. it kind of, you know what I mean? It's, it stays a little bit longer, but I'm not that guitar. I, I wish I was. Maybe I need to like take a course or just hang out with more musicians. But like when you put the instrument in my hand, I know how to use it. And that's it, you know. Also, you're a songwriter. Some of these songs on the new album you wrote completely by yourself, some yeah. with uh, your brothers, uh, some with people like Jonathan McReynolds and Matt Marr and <laughs> some uh, Israel Houghton. So tell me about your journey as a songwriter. Songwriting is how I understand life at times. It's how I express joy, pain, random bursts of creativity. Um, I just write. Like, I don't put any limitations on who or how. I'm careful, you know, I don't just go in the room with everybody, but like, because you only have so much time in your life. But I, I think that allowing a song to be born is one of the most sacred acts for me because it is what my light looks like and it is how I express and how God speaks to me. be times when like mercy right Mm -hmm. Uh, i wrote that song not really having even a full understanding of mercy and grace um and i wrote i wrote it in a moment of disappointment in myself and this is going to sound crazy to some people but god wrote through me the message that i needed to hear preached to myself in that moment Mm -hmm. and we talk about God as this all-knowing, sovereign being, but He's also a creative. I mean, He's the He's the person that you know created that 
ugly fish that we are like, why are you here? (laughs) And God is like, this is an expression of who I am. And I just, I want it to, and I'm God and I can do that. The scripture says he wraps himself in light and you're like, everything he does draws attention to who he is. And we, you know, we're not called to, to, you know, to seek attention everywhere we go. But I think there's something godlike and beautiful about allowing ourselves to express things just for the sake of expressing it and make things with our hands or mm-hmm. or create things with our mind and and you know what i mean so there's there's beauty in that and divinity in that and um so songwriting is much like that and i don't put any pressure on it i, I could be driving in the car and see a word on the sign and be like oh yeah you know what i mean mm-hmm. it just sparks something and i just let it right. go I could be working on something very important and a song comes to me and I will put it down because the song is going to be the thing that impacts people, not checking that thing off my list. I can do that later. You know what I mean? So, um, so obviously what I'm trying to say is songwriting is a huge part of who I am, but really just, I think more so in this part of my life, I've, I've wanted to allow creativity to really flow freely the way that it's supposed to in my life. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Doe right after this. True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So, from auditoriums to small groups, there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com events, and if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. And hopefully, I'll be seeing you out there in person. Hello. My name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is, that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening.
And now back to my conversation with Doe. You've taken the musicianship and the songwriting, merged them together with your voice and your sense of style to become an artist, a performing artist. So tell me about that evolution, uh, you know, who, where you fit, who your influences have been, how you imagined yourself doing this, and, and then how this current expression compares to how you imagined it when you were a kid. I don't know. I mean, that was such a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I think I always knew I was going to sing. There was a moment when I was 12 where, and I'm really glad God did this, but you know, I was at like this little camp meeting. I'm 12 years old and this pastor gets up and preaches on pride. I didn't realize my whole stance in life up to that point was like, God, if you don't do this for me, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go on American Idol or sing mainstream. Back then we said secular. Everybody has different words for it now. I'm going to go sing secular music. I'm going to make it happen for myself. He preaches his message on pride and I'm 12. And for some reason, I understand what he's saying. And I'm able to connect it to my um, God. If you don't get on my bandwagon, then I'm going to kick you off and do my own thing. <laughs> Our wow. posture. And, uh, and, and God dealt with that. And I'm like really thankful uh, because now, you know, in today's world, I could have that hungry, insatiable ambition right. for fame. And no one would look at me like I'm wrong. You know, no one would look right. at me like I'm selfish because today's world's motto is be you and walk in your truth. And, you know, so I can say I'm doing all that I've, I've called, I was called to be. But there is this uh, settling level of surrender that God has developed in me. Uh, as if to say, like, this is not who you are. This is what you do. And this is a, an expression, an extension of who I am in you. And as long as that's fully surrender, like, you're going to be all right. And you're going to love what you do. And um, so I just feel like, man, like, I get to do this. I didn't know exactly how it was going to come together. But I just, I've known that this is where I belong. Even when it gets hard or it feels like, None of it's coming together. And God, you got me out here. I said, yes, you, you got me out here struggling. Right, right, right. <laughs> you, even when my faith is being developed, I'm like, yo, I get to do what I imagined myself doing as a kid. I'm like, I'm here. <laughs> You're finding a lane that's fairly unique because it's not hardcore gospel music. It's not CCM music. It's, it's not just straight pop. It's this kind of uniquely I mean, there have been other artists uh, Lauren Hill or Corinne Bailey Ray that have kind of inhabited this space but tell me about how you have found this unique voice and what that uh, what that is and what that means to you I think the originality comes in you um, chomping on and processing all of these different experiences and sounds and then you releasing your unique fingerprint on all of that and how it mm -hmm. you know flows through you so, you know, I did listen to like Nora Jones and Corinne mm. Bailey Ray and um, and Lauren Hill for a little bit because mom and dad didn't really let us listen to like secular music. So I would hear set like I remember being glued to the TV, watching Indy Irie be on Oprah and Crystal Lewis. And um, how did you come across Crystal Lewis? There was something gospelly about mm -hmm. her voice and her vibrato and the intensity of her tone. Um, and I think black people really, you know, love that. And then she was with Kirk Franklin. And it right. was like, yes, ma'am, you know. And I grew up in a diverse background. 
it wasn't all black. It was it was white. It was Hispanic. It was. When you everything. say it, are you talking about like your church or your family or my the neighborhood ch- my you lived church. in? My okay. church, and then I I had you know I have family. I have people that I call you know my cousin that are white, and then that space. People saying whatever was powerful. They didn't, you know, it wasn't just like, well, this is our expression and we stick over here. It was just like we, we heard everything. So your first two singles have gone straight to number one on gospel radio with a style that's not really central core gospel. Jonathan has made it his mission to champion people with a different style that he believes in and that he feels need that. Um, platform. When we say Jonathan, we're talking Jonathan McReynolds for Jonathan for McReynolds, that- and he, um, you know, I made him promise me that he would protect my sound, and he did, and um, and he's done everything he can to to make sure that who I am is is at the forefront. But like you know, like I said, I grew up in this diverse world. My sister loves country. My brother produces pop, so we understand how to speak all of those musical languages. So that's what you're hearing. So I love pulling from everywhere. This will end like I wanted to. I win. The enemy will have to lose again. See, I'm a different fighter now. I'm a different fighter. And I have got to think. Cause his joy is my strength. See, the devil will learn it's a mistake. When I am sure that I'm not going in cycles. You got to tour last fall with Jonathan and Molly Music. I mean, talk about two of the coolest artists that there are right now. Molly's last project was one of my albums of the year last year. What was that like being on that tour and how much of the crowd already knew you and how many were just discovering you? Just kind of walk me through what it was like to be on on the road with those two. Yeah, um, they are opposites in, uh, they're very different in the way that they approach um, entertainment, I should say, on the stage. Molly knows, he's like a, he is like, an entertainer at right. heart, you know, right. that is like what he does. And you could see him put every effort into communicating to the crowd and, and working it with the music and working the crowd. You could tell he, you know, knew what he was doing there. And then Jonathan brought a another piece to the puzzle, which was very ministry minded and, and like even more so um, this kind of warm, quality of um connecting with the mm-hmm. the fans and the and so it was like this really cool merging of two different artists mm-hmm. if i could say it like that and so getting to watch them each get on the stage and and the crowd equally respond with just like pure joy and excitement but then watching them hit the crowd differently because they express differently I learned a lot watching them. And then I learned a lot about myself because I was able to see kind of what I bring to the table as an artist in uh, opening up for them every night. I remember the first night I was so nervous and I was standing at the bottom of the stairs and the DJ looks at me and he knew and he was like, are you nervous? And I was like, yeah, he was like, okay, I'll do one more song. 
So he did one more song and then uh, and then I got up there and that, you know, it's like, that's all she wrote. And um, it was an interesting, fun, well, I would say I learned a lot. I learned a whole lot and it was good for me to go on that tour. We're going to step away from my chat with Doe for just a few minutes to crank up the jukebox. So let me drop a couple of Motor City bus tokens into the slot here and see what we can cook up. This conversation with Doe seemed to be a perfect time to crank up some records by another artist who dissolved the barriers between R&B, pop, rock, and even jazz. Stevie Wonder's transcendent sonic gumbo and his relentlessly hopeful lyrics have served as an example for me of the potential music has to lift us, challenge us, unite us, and even rebuke us from our prayer closets to the dance floor. You think there are seven wonders of the world? Well, here's the eighth, little Stevie Wonder. After a rousing start as a child star in the early 60s, Stevie emerged in 1972 as a fully formed artist. He was a songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, a remarkable vocalist, and a performer without equal. In March of 72, he released Music of My Mind, which featured the imaginative and yet entirely musical use of some brand new synthesizers. Where some artists had already begun using these technological innovations to create experimental sounds or effects, Wonder integrated them into the fabric of his new progressive soul sound. Much like Marvin Gaye's revolutionary What's Going On album from the previous year, Music of My Mind was a true album, a cohesive creative statement, and not merely a collection of singles. But the most important element of Music of My Mind's success may be the creative era it ushered in for Stevie in the 70s. just seven months later. Whatever music of my mind hinted at, Talking Book delivered. It was a massive, critical, cultural, and commercial success, spawning two number one singles, but also featured hugely influential album tracks. Talking Book was Wonder's first number one album on the R&B charts, but also made it to number three on the pop charts. (laughs) 
1973 with the even more experimental and more successful Inner Visions LP. He dazzled listeners with both musical prowess and an ability to tackle social, political, and interpersonal issues with muscular hope. I'm so darn glad he let me try again Cause my last time on earth I lived a whole world of sin I'm so glad that I know more than I knew that Gonna keep on trying until I Three days after Intervisions was released, however, Wonder was in a car accident that left him in a coma for several days and nearly took his life. Stevie's road to recovery was long and painful, and at one time he even wondered if he had lost his ability to play music. But Stevie survived physically, musically, and spiritually. In fact, he credited the experience as bringing him closer to his faith and to his sense of mission. Tell me people, why can't they say that hey? Somehow Stevie returned in 1974 with yet another masterpiece. Although Fulfillingness's first finale felt more contemplative and introspective overall, and generally featured more laid-back arrangements, the album showed the artist digging deeper into the ideas he was exploring and the various jazz, soul, pop, and even gospel textures between the hits. Although Wonder did not release an album in 1975, he was active touring, collaborating with other artists, and getting more and more involved with relief work in Africa. At one point, he decided to retire from recording and performing and had even scheduled a farewell concert. Something changed his mind, though, and in 1976, he released an album that is considered by some to be the greatest album in the history of, well, albums. Songs in the Key of Life, a 21-song double album, which included an extra four-song EP, covered all of the musical and lyrical territory Wonder had been exploring, but with more collaboration with other musicians, more hits, and a clearly focused social and spiritual message for all with ears to hear. It's really impossible to overstate the impact Songs in the Key of Life had, and continues to have, on music. 
Yes, it won an unprecedented fourth Album of the Year Grammy for Stevie, along with three other Grammys. And yes, it has been certified diamond by the RIAA for sales exceeding 10 million units. And yes, dozens of the most successful and influential artists of all time have cited it as their favorite album ever. All of this is true. But it seems to me that the real impact of this album and the entire era of Stevie Wonder's music that it capped is how it inspired, challenged, and blessed regular listeners. Would you like to go with me down my dead end street? Would you like to come with me to village? Get See the people lock their doors while robbers laugh and steal. Beggars watch and eat their meals from garbage cans. So I decided to invite my friend Aaron A. Train Smith over to talk about Stevie in the 70s. He had a front row seat, or more likely a backstage pass, as Stevie changed the world with his music. I wanted to hear about that era from someone who was not only there, but was a part of it. And since Aaron lives just a couple blocks from my house here in East Nashville, he was able to come join me in the studio for an in-person hang. Aaron Smith, A-Train, thank yes. you for coming to the highly glamorous True Tunes lair. Studio. <laughs> yeah, right. It's great to have you here. It's talking. quite a room. Thank it's you. quite a room. It's, uh, it was my son's bedroom. and it's, Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, so you didn't uh, put in a hot tub. Instead, no, no, you put no, it in yeah. a studio. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> oh, is that what I'm supposed to do? I didn't get that memo. Oh, man. I hope Michelle doesn't hear this. That might give her an idea. And I get, I get evicted out of the last corner of the house. Uh, um, thanks for being here today. We're, we're talking about uh, Stevie in the 70s. You know, we don't get too many artists with the kind of longevity that Stevie Wonder has. But to be able to see these distinct chapters, you know, the 60s as a, as a kid star and yeah. kind of coming up, then finding his own voice. But the 70s, man, a run of amazing records. Uh, before we get into that, tell me about your story and how you were playing with Motown acts uh, in, in the early 70s and stuff. Tell me how, mm -hmm. you know, your background briefly and then how you ended up playing with Motown. Okay. Um, uh, Steven and I are the same age. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. He was so March. So 13 years old, you're going, what, what am I doing sitting around in my yeah. bed? <laughs> well, no. I, I mean, when I was 12 and 13, I had no idea I was going to be a drummer. You know, so I'm, I'm totally listening as a, a black kid in the South. And, and now we got this black kid who has a hit record, Fingertips Part 2. That was pretty incredible, but... I don't think anybody outside of Motown, outside of that circle at the time, had any idea that Stevie was as talented as he is, or was and is. Story goes that Stevie was very mischievous. So he's on this tour, Motown tour, with all these acts. Yeah. And he's the kid, and he's got directions. This is what you go out and do, and, blah, and you come back, and yeah. that's it. So... This one particular time at the Apollo, he, he's done so well, and he decides 
they're you know they're telling they're trying to guide him off the stage, you right. know, and he almost does like a James Brown and, and <laughs> right. let me go off, and, yeah, and right. runs back right. to the stage, right. and the musicians have like left their post, yeah, and they're scrambling, going. What, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, he, Stevie starts singing. Right. And so it's a big hit. Part yeah. two is like yeah. was like the big hit. And it was an encore. Yeah. An unofficial, unauthorized. Unofficial, author, unauthorized, <laughs> yes. So, that, so you were familiar with that just as a fan? Yeah. yeah. We all knew that, you know. Yeah. And it's never been done before. Not just a hit on the R&B charts, but a hit. Hit. On Billboard 100. Billboard, like, yeah, yeah. Everybody's listening to this. So that's how I'm listening to Stevie Wonder. had all these musicians in my hometown and um, a group of them were touring with Chuck Jackson. He had a big hit called Any Day Now. And one day I got a phone call saying Chuck needed a drummer. Would I go? On the road. On the road, yeah. And you were how old? 19 going on 20. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to ask my mom if I could go. (laughs) Right, yeah. And uh she said yes. I got packed up. I was ready to go that morning. We were supposed to leave, and she went off to work and told me to be careful. And when she came home, I was still sitting there, like five thirty. She, she's like, up. "Boy, what are you doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I don't know. I never heard from anybody. Boss you know, no up. cell phones. <laughs> you right, know." Right. So it, when they did come back, they were all apologetic and. So I got that gig and I started touring with Chuck and we eventually played the 20 Grand Hotel and that's where a lot of Motown live that's in records. Detroit? Yeah. yeah. Um, live records were done there a right. lot by, by a lot of Motown artists. While there, Norman Whitfield came to the show and after the first set, he came in the back, introduced himself and asked me if I could come would I like to come to the studio tomorrow and make a record? Hmm. Sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Sounds good. <laughs> so I, I went there and um, we did Smiling Faces oh, of wow. the Temptations. Yeah. As we did that. That was your first record cut yeah. there in Motown? Uh-huh. Wow. And um, he came back to the show that night. That We had the session that morning. Went back to the 20 grand that night. He came back. And, and he told me about the undisputed truth. I got this band. Right. I'm putting it together. Uh-huh. We're going to have a big hit in about five months. I want you to come up and be in the band and move to Detroit. Sure thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. So during that interim, I got drafted. This is January of 71. Wow. Not a good time to be Not a good time to this be a soldier. Um, wow. You know, I eventually got out. And by this time, the Undisputed Truth had released their version of Smiling Faces. And so I came back. I did eventually move to Detroit. Hmm. And that's how the whole thing started. Right. Let me tell you, 
I got to Detroit, Stevie was right at that time making that change. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't want to be guided like that because he had his his own musical ideas and stuff right. like that. And, and as it worked out, it was great for him. And mm -hmm. he, since he could just do his own thing, he did everything he could do. Right. You know, he played drums, keyboards, sang. Right. That was from one of the first times you had an artist do everything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. Sing it, write it, play it. Learning He's learning how to, how to play drums from some of the best. Benny Benjamin taught him how to play drums. Really? Yeah. Wow. And that was part of his contractual thing with Motown was, you know, he would re-sign, but he had to have full creative control. Full like, creative control. Yeah, which was not... Brilliant. Yeah, but nobody would even have thought of that, yeah. especially a young artist. Right. You know, he's 20 years right. old, 21. So when the 70s kick off, what do you remember about your impressions as a musician when you were hearing the new Stevie, not the little Stevie mm -hmm. Wonder, but just Stevie mm -hmm. Wonder, you know, with those first records, uh, Music of My Mind, Talking Book, mm -hmm. both came out within one year mm -hmm. um, in 1972. What what were you thinking? How did that hit you? Well, it it's kind of like gave you a vision that you could actually do something else besides like the R&B thing, you know, uh, actually get out of the Motown thing which I kind of did. It, it wasn't on purpose, but I think my interest kind of kicked me out. My interest caused me to take a certain direction without knowing that I was actually leaving Motown to do something else and that style of music to do something else. So Stevie was very inspirational. And then Stevie goes on tour with the Rolling Stones in 1972. And I think that's the thing that catapulted Stevie into the public, the, the larger public eye. We watched the uh, Summer of Soul movie together last year, mm -hmm. and there's that scene when Stevie gets behind the drum kit right. at a show, and it was like, holy cow. I mean, I'd never seen any... I'd, I knew that he could play, but I never saw that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's high level. So yeah, now, as a drummer, what, how did that impact you? But in terms of the sound of how he played and the mm -hmm. style and what that was bringing into the Motown mm -hmm. thing, how did that impact you? Well, it was kind of like all the different music's coming out during that time you know you had Stax Motown you had uh, the guys in Philadelphia right. and stuff so it was just considered here's mm -hmm. a new thing here's a new feel because nobody's playing music that feels like this you right. know with Stevie Wonder people weren't just saying oh I like this kind of music or I tolerate this my mind is open to all different races people genuinely just loved these songs mm -hmm. 
I, yeah. I, I would imagine some of them, in spite of the fact that Stevie was black, and this is much farther than just R&B, and it's not even what Sly and the Family Stone or um, Hendrix was doing, you know, that's reaching. It, that's unique. Because it was so good. Right. You know, and it was the instrumentation too, you know, right. that clavinet, you know, yeah. dun, 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 dun. Right. Now you can't deny that. I was three <clears throat> years old in 1973. Stevie goes on Sesame Street mm-hmm. and plays Superstition, a long version of it. And when that episode was on, I'd never seen or felt anything like that song. Mm-hmm. But we were coming up in a time where the music on the radio was more blended ethnically culturally than had ever been the case there, oh yeah and so as i came up i could hear johnny cash i could hear you know funk stuff and gospel stuff having him on sesame street as silly as it might seem i think was a master stroke very superstitious When those albums started coming out, starting with probably Talking Book, I mean, Music of My Mind is sort of his first foray into, I'm going to write these songs, I'm going to play these songs, produce them myself. Mm -hmm. But what did you think of this new Stevie sound when you first heard, like, uh, Talking Book or Inner Visions, you know, those those records leading up to Songs in the Key of Life? I thought it was great, because, you know, I was was young, and I was... Stevie was like, for me, um, a door opener. You know, it was a time of ideas. Right. You know, and people had, people were coming out with different ideas. Different musics were everywhere, you know. He was part of that progression, you know. Right. And so I was, I was all in because I wanted to be part of that progression. You know, I I didn't, I never had a desire to um, just play R&B songs. Cindy, Mama, uh, you understand that? No. Well, uh, like, I don't understand how you can, because, like, I've been to, you know, Paris, Beirut, you know, I'm in uh, Iraq, Iran, Eurasia, you know, I speak very, very um, fluent Spanish. Uh, todo está bien chévere. You understand that? Bien chévere. Bien chévere. Is that right, Mama? Yeah, because I got my shaking room. I'm going to do a little Everybody's got a thing, but some don't know. Don't you worry about a thing. 
So then we have Intervisions in 73, mm -hmm. gets Album of the Year again, two more Grammys in addition to that. And on that one, just a few examples of songs, Living for the City, mm -hmm. Higher Ground. I mean, Higher Ground. But then also, Don't You Worry About a Thing. Mm -hmm. So tell me about how that record and those songs impacted you then. It, you know, it's still Stevie at this point doing his own stuff. He's playing everything. Right. You know, and he's just coming up with really great hooks. And, and like this one writer said that his music was spiritual, it's political, it was emotional, and it was about relationships, relational. Right. And he could put all that on one album yeah. and encase it in his music. So you got one man's total vision. And, you know, in the 70s, the early 70s, let's start 1968 and go up to, like, 1977. There was some great music being created. And it was wide open, you know. Right. It just had to be good. Right. You know, it had yes, to be FM good. radio is... is a, yeah, a, FM radio a, is a, blasting, you know. Um, he's got license to do this stuff. He's been accepted. You know, he's in with the, the rock crowd, the pop crowd, everybody. You know, right. everybody's like, oh, Stevie, yeah. yeah. Uh, the things he talks about, like, he can sing about politics, living for the city. Oh, my God. You know, he, he, and that thing about this black kid going to New York, and just because he's black, he gets arrested. Wow. New York, just like I pictured it. Skyscraper and everything. Hey, hey, brother. Hey, come here, Flick. Hey, you look, you look hip, man. Hey, you want to make yourself five bucks, man? Yeah, brother. Hey, look here. Run this car. Speed for me right quick, okay? Run this car. Come on. Hey. What? Huh? I don't know. What? I'm just going across the street. Check your mouth. Oh, no. What I do? Turn around. Turn around. Put your hands behind your back. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, I'm The jury of your peers having found you guilty. Ten years. What? There's a song on that record called Jesus Children of America. Yeah. That one, oh my gosh, like it, it, it's so surprising actually that this is when the Jesus movement is rocking. I mm. mean, Explo 72 just happened and Time Magazine has, you know, stories and Newsweek. You know, so Jesus is everywhere in the culture at this point. His upbringing in the church kind of runs through his music. Hello Jesus, Jesus children, Jesus loves you, Jesus children, hello children, Jesus loves you of America. Are you hearing what he's saying? Are you feeling what you're praying? Are you healing, praying, feeling what you say inside? You'd better tell your story there. How did that arc of him as an artist getting more serious but incorporating all that spiritual stuff, what kind of impact did that have on you? Well, a lot of artists start going, incorporating their spiritual life into their music, you know? Right. Uh, and you had Mahavishnu, John McLaughlin, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, and, and um, 
Wayne Shorter. Uh, so it all that combined, I remember thinking, man, these these guys got something going on, you know. And Stevie singing about God, and and um, these guys are are singing about something spiritual. I'm not so sure what it is yet, but I think I need to check it out. Yeah. You know, and we cannot forget the ju- drug culture at that time. Right, right. So a lot of people have gone through the drug thing and are coming out of it. And so this this music is is like very helpful in inspiring you to get straight, do something else. And he said it in such a great way. Stevie's lyrics are so pristine and clear. Right. You know. And and so intentional, and it, there's no question what it's about, and you instantly relate to it because right. it's something social or political. You know, the the one um, you haven't done nothing. Oh, it's God. a song to Richard Nixon. Yeah. You know, um, the beauty of this is that it can apply to not only Richard Nixon but every other person, mm-hmm. pastor, politician parent that has ever said all this stuff that they think but they're not doing right anything yeah. about it right. so that's uh, for songwriters i mean there's a there's a path here an example of transcending mm-hmm. as a songwriter not just excelling but taking it saying i'm going to write about this specific thing in such a way that because this thing is actually universal right because during that time uh gas prices shortage energy shortage you know remember the gas lines in 1973 you know wrapped around the gas station so it affected everybody we would not care to wake up to the nightmare that's becoming So Fulfilling This, you're saying, is your favorite album of that arc? Yeah. So what is it about that album that makes it stand out for you as the, the best? Because I, I kind of get a... It was almost like it was done in one day. It's yeah. the, the production is very consistent. It is, it's like one thought. Yeah. It's like starting at the beginning, all his thoughts come out, and as he hits on one subject the music changes you know and it just keeps going that's that's the way it is to me because when i was listening to it back in the day that's the way it was you know sitting in a dark room with the record player on you know and and hit and you put that record on and you didn't come out of that thing until it was over right there was nothing to snap you out of yeah he seems to have more vision than most of us how do you write about politics and relationships and and social issues and sort of stuff and not see you know physically yeah Yeah. is it do you listen 
Are people, or do you listen to people talk? Do you watch, listen to the news, listening to the radio? You know, it'd be interesting to know just what fed him. You know how right. he how he could see so well. You know, as a blind person. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. It also is interesting that fulfilling this first finale, even within the title, implies kind of something might be over. And after that record comes out, he thinks, okay, I'm done. I've made my statement. And he plans a farewell show and mm-hmm. the whole thing. He's going to go to Africa and do work with disabled children in Africa. That's mm-hmm. going to be how he wants to spend the rest of his time. Mm-hmm. And some, for some reason, he changes his mind. And he says, well, I'll do another album. And that becomes Songs in the Key of Life. This double, long, sprawling thing that's kind of like everything in the closet you could think of is going to get turned. And I'm going to bring in all my friends, including Herbie Hancock, yeah, Michael Sambella. Like mm-hmm. major singers and musicians are going to come in and it just blows up. Mm-hmm. I mean, as big as he was with those other hits, this takes it to another level. It does. It does. interesting to see how many people have cited that album as maybe the best album ever made i mean i know michael jackson you know it was a hugely influential record for michael jackson mary j blige whitney houston george michael even on the pop side people are saying that but then like phil anselmo from pantera a metal band said it's a living breathing miracle wow (laughs) so when you think a record like that is reaching everybody from pantera to Michael Jackson to gospel artists, mm-hmm. you know, that are listening to it, and it's going to have a big effect on the this new form of what they call contemporary gospel music. Mm-hmm. Andre Crouch and right. stuff like right, that. Right, right, right. And it's still birthing great musicians. His style was clearly evolving, and he was doing all these different things, but to most people, it still felt like you know R&B-based music. But it was Stevie's not considered that much as being an R&B artist. He's Stevie Wonder, and it's <laughs> right. It's kind of transcends it's his stuff. own thing. Right. You know, you can put him anywhere, anywhere you like, because he was selling records. I mean, he was on every chart. Right. Um, what do you think is it about his music that uh, allowed it to transcend and speak to so many different audiences? Harmony. His harmonics, the stuff he was playing on keyboards, yeah. the rhythm and, and the lyrics. I mean, it's all there. And just the, the oh my goodness, he's doing that. You know, his harmony on piano was right. different. He like 
took uh, gospel harmony and brought it out and, and start writing songs to it, you know, pop songs to it. But then other times he could come up with melodies like Isn't She Lovely mm-hmm. that sounded like it could have been a Beach Boys song, it could have been a Frank Sinatra song, like anybody would would respond to that melody. Right, you know? right, right. I, I remember first hearing Isn't She Lovely and going, what is he doing? <laughs> You know, you had a little baby crying on it. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, Stevie's lost it. <laughs> <laughs> So when Songs in the Key of Life came out in 76, he was he had won the Album of the Year Grammy for his previous two records already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is now going to be three for three. Do you remember when you first heard Songs in the Key of Life, what your impressions were? Yeah, um, I first heard it with other musicians. We used to get together every day, you know, when we were at home. And listen to albums, you know. So everybody in in my circle loved that record, and immediately, immediately, yeah. you know, and got it. You know, as soon as they found out it was out, got it. I got the new Stevie record. I'll be right there, <laughs> right. you know. And you know, uh, late into the night, you know, listening to records. You know, yeah, on a big console. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> records, actual records. Um, so, any standout songs occur to you as um, favorites from that? Yes. Love's in Need is a great song. It's that love in need of love today. Don't delay. Send yours in right away. And the other one is uh, If It's Magic. That's one of the most beautiful songs he's ever written. Yeah. You know. If it's magic, then why can't it be everlasting? Like the sun that always shines. Like the poet's endless rhyme Like the galaxies in time Have a Talk with God is also one because in addition to the Jesus movement happening right here in the culture, you've got Vietnam. You've got a crashing economy. All that stuff. So Mm -hmm. the early 70s are a tough time for yeah. everybody but i mean for people of color there's a particular kind of specific struggle that he's able to document very literally but then somehow expand them out to where everybody that's feeling that struggle right can resonate there are people who have let the problems of today lead them to conclude that for them life is not the way 
But every problem has an answer And if yours you cannot find You should talk it over to him He'll give you peace of mind When you feel your life's too hard Just go have a talk with God He's dealing with faith issues he's dealing with social issues and as a kid coming up listening to that that's one of the reasons i think that i never have seen it being able to be separated like if you're going to talk about your faith it better inform how you think about your society and your neighborhood and stuff you know there's a lot of very visceral pictures of inner city life that i couldn't relate to growing up Mm -hmm. in the country in the middle of illinois how did the music sit with you lyrically and in terms of uh that spiritual energy and the social energy and all mm-hmm. that stuff. It was very Afrocentric, you know, just like his his dress and persona mm-hmm. became. And he was pointing out issues in and outside of the black community right. and uh, writing about those issues from a black perspective. It was more radical at the time than spiritual to us, you know, because you had had the Detroit riots, the L.A. riots, and and all this sort of stuff. So Stevie's music was revolutionary in in a social sort of way for us. Yeah. You know, he pointed out things and kind of gave you a way of seeing things a little bit different. For me, in my case, I know it created a lot of empathy. The optimism and the, the proactivity of his message, yeah. I resonated with, and it gave me a lot of hope. And the mm-hmm. fact that it was connected to the gospel helped me see the gospel as being something that is essentially mm-hmm. it's going to affect our community if yeah we, if stevie was more a martin luther king than a than a uh, malcolm x So when you think about the the lasting legacy of an artist like Stevie Wonder, especially in that golden era, what are some lessons you think young artists, songwriters that are just getting started might learn? That you need to take risk, be true to yourself, you know, write it because it's it's coming out of you and that's happening for a reason, you know, and you shouldn't suppress that. Just go for it and do it. From music, the 70s, the walls hadn't been erected, you know, to make this, this kind of music, this, this kind of, everybody was listening to everything, you know, and I think everybody just was into that, you know. Nobody's putting any restrictions. The 70s were like a really great time for music. Music from the 70s just like wide open, you know, people were discovering I mean, it was just a wild time. I don't think music will ever see that kind of uh, frontier again. This whole show has been about trying to listen to better music and listen to music better. And mm-hmm. in my life, that's come by sitting alongside experts and listening with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I learn a lot. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. There's much more of my conversation with Aaron Smith that we'll be featuring in future episodes. But after a quick break, I'll be back in the interview suite to finish my conversation with Doe about her new album, Clarity. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. 
I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify Gallery Stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated and around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, Please support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. Really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks. And now back to my conversation with Doe. Well, let's talk through some of the rec- the songs on this uh, record. Uh, it's just... Um, <laughs> It's hard to narrow them down because I, I love every one of them. I've been listening to it uh, on repeat. But Aww. I, I want to start with the first song because the very first line of the very first song, I like to use my brain for you. Oh, that yeah. Is, that is not the kind of lyric that usually would kick off a song or an album. But You know, I think it was just like you're, that's your internal processor. That's how you understand life. Uh, that's the thing that you use to do You know what you do, whether you're a doctor or an artist. And that is what your light looks like. Um, so for me, and I think I was kind of dabbling with, is this a love song or is this about the Lord? But um, I hadn't, I wasn't in love. So I, God was like my inspiration for it. And it just was like, I like shining my light for you. And I use it to write songs for you. I feel like the best of me is that side of me. There are other things that I feel I do very well, but expression through words and lyrics and melody is like, one of the things that I feel like I do very well with my brain. And then later in the song, that that line where you're talking about, I don't need music. Like I can do this yeah. without music, but but I really love that I get to do this with music. That to me represents thoughtfulness. And, and I think that's got to come from some of that stuff you've invested in yourself and in your mind, in your brain, <laughs> through education and experience. Jeez, you know, I have to say no one has ever really looked at the lyrics of that song and appreciated it in that way. Like the, the real message of it, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't have to use this for you, but I, but it's how I choose to love you because my light shines brighter when it shines for you. And 
Um, and that's the beauty of the song, you know, like, it's like what I was saying, like, I could be ambitious and nobody would say anything to me, but I, I feel like I've experienced an enhancement in my life as I've chosen to, um, shine for Jesus and also live a life that's other centered. Oh, I like to use my brain for you and use it to write songs for you. You're getting all of the best of me. Cause I'm giving all of the best to me Oh love, my heart's only built for two You won't wear me up cause I'm the perfect shoe You're getting all of the best to me Cause I'm giving all of my best I, 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 I don't need words And I don't need songs But I choose to use them My light shines brighter when it shines for you Whoa, I ain't blowing smoke no, this ain't how it's how I choose to love you. To me, it sets up uh, other songs with a, a leaning on our understanding, or you know, a, and a connection to our mind. When you, when your song, um, when I pray, confesses. I might not feel like doing this. Like <laughs> my emotions might not be in this. I might not feel like this is working but I'm deciding to do something like pray. Tell me about that song. I was in a moment of, of praying with a, a, a dear friend who was going through a really rough time. And all of a sudden, the the message that my father's carried all of my life about prayer was kind of stirring up in me. And I, I, I feel like God wrote something for people who not only don't feel like praying, but they don't feel like they can because they haven't been taught the churchy religious rules of prayer. And so they feel like their language and the the way that they would say it wouldn't be acceptable to God. But I, it's about what's in somebody and what's in their heart and, uh, and how they approach him in humility. It was just like, no matter where you are, how broken you are, the word says that God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. People who are brokenhearted and who are crushed in spirit do not sound churchy. When we're broken, we are stripped of all religiosity and every religious lean that we have. And we're just talking to people straight and we're, you know what I mean? We sound broken. And God's like, finally an honest prayer because we have to start with where you actually are, not with where you pretend to be and how you want people to think you're doing fine. And Prayer is for us. It's, it's not that God needs to hear any of that. There's nothing he's clueless about. There's a, we're not, right. we're not uh, turning him on to some new idea. Right, absolutely. I don't always know the right way. No, I don't always know what to say. But all I know is something I try. Uh, this is one that you wrote by yourself, um, yeah. coming again from a perspective of vulnerability and humility. That song was actually very healing for me um, because I'm a pastor's kid. Um, I grew up in church and I wasn't even fully aware of where the wound was 
uh, when I wrote that song, I was asking the Lord to help me find, help me, show me where the this performance wound is in my heart, um, because I I struggled with that performance based mindset. I think obviously for me the the most powerful lyric of that song is performance won't buy you love. You can try, but it never will be enough. And I wanted God to set me free. And then I talk about it. You know what I'm saying? When I'm looking all good again. But he was like, <laughs> nope. Well, I'm, I want you to talk about and sing this song as I'm processing and, and pulling those layers back. So that's the song I wrote with my hands shaking because there are different mm-hmm. words in there that I know people who I grew up with are going to hear and be like, oh. I know what she's talking about right here, you know. I said it right and everybody's happy but me. I wore it so well, it covered up my identity. Because I pretend so well, but I question as well. Tell the people what they want to hear or catch. Hell, there's only so much I can take. And I'm spilling over raging waters, making me free. And I don't mind. Guess I'll find myself People only want the narrative that sells Well, and I tried I'm trying I'm shedding performance Yes, slowly But surely Now is Hey You, uh, that's just a love song, right? It is, you know, I I wanted to be, I wanted my story to be on my album. Uh, there was this, a relationship that deteriorated because of lack of communication. We were young. There was so much pressure for people trying to, you know, put us together. So after a while, it just deteriorated. But there were no spoken feelings or communicated anything. So years later after growing up and processing and realizing like, yo, we, <laughs> we were kids. Um, I missed my friend. And so I wrote him a letter and a song and I just was like, write me back. I left the second verse open. And I said, write me back. Mm. And um, he didn't write me back. I love telling this story because everybody's like, oh, did you write me? <laughs> he, he didn't write me back because I, I didn't realize that it was a lot to process for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be a great song, you know. And um, so I get in the studio and I just pick Jonathan and the other guy's brains. I'm like, I need you to help me understand what a male feels like in this situation. And I don't want it to be a male bashing song. And my thing, my thing about Hey You, and I know I'm talking a lot, is communication is godly. Oftentimes in churches, we have people who can... Um, if you pray in tongues, they can pray in tongues so eloquently. They can pray to the Lord so eloquently. But we struggle with talking to each other. We're mm. sometimes mean to each other. We don't know how to to bear our souls when it counts and say what we need to say. And I always challenge people. You, The church encourages you to leave the world empty of everything you're supposed to give God. Surrender your all. But I say leave the world empty of everything that you need to say to the people that you love. And I feel like that is godly. And that's an area that we struggle with in the church. Then there was so much tension. We spent more time fighting than being in love. Oh, we were just.
And then a, a, a very different tone would be What I'm Waiting For, which you wrote with Matt Marr and Brian Fowler. It's It sounds like it would work as a worship song, and it, and it touches on the fact that you've been, in all these years, you've been working with Maverick City, you've been working with uh, Israel, you've been doing stuff that's still congregational worship. So tell me about Absolutely. this song, how you approach a song like this, and yet still keep it stylistically in this lane that you've found yourself in. Gosh, that was the most interesting writing session for me. And I I had written with uh, Matt Marr before. I think because worship is what I do, it was just very easy to, to write something in that lane. I think the powerful thing, you just said it, you didn't know you said it, but you said it, um, <laughs> is that I have gotten an opportunity to do all of these things, but at my core, um, only God can give me the word that I need that will sustain me um, throughout this season. It is a word that I'm actually partnering my faith in action with, that he said he was going to do these things in my life. But then it is his word that sustains me and allows me to be full enough to go on the next ministry trip and pour and and not just make it this artistry thing, but understand that my vocation is not a vacation. It is a moment for me to release what God's given me in private moments. I'm walking through personal things in my life <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. while I'm being an artist and dressing up cute and smiling on the stage. And <laughs> and if my personal life is not okay, it's going to start to affect you know what I do on the outside. And so God's the reason why I'm doing all this and I, I need him. I need him right. <laughs> or else I just, I'll just be ratchet for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? I absolutely need him. And that kind of leads into that song Undoing that you wrote with Israel. And man, what a cool track. Israel produced it and <laughs> co-wrote this with you, right? So tell uh-huh. cause, man, the vibe the from that cool lick at the beginning, the you know, the acoustic guitar lick to the horn stuff. So th- Yeah. And then with the lyric that kind of it's balanced off by that with, with some serious weight, I think. That, yeah. Gosh. What were we even, I mean, I'm trying to figure out when, I don't even remember the writing session because I've had a couple writing sessions with his, but I know that he asked me, where are you at in your life right now? And I told him that I'm kind of in this place where God's like undoing some things that I learned. I'm having to unlearn a lot of things that I thought were biblical or that I thought they were, uh, had to do with the character of God and they really just had to do with my own mind and thoughts about myself. And then uh, I went into the studio with Danny Duncan and uh, and we recorded the song and, and Iz was on um, FaceTime while I was recording and so he's listening to oh, wow. you know, the vocals. Yeah, so we were just like putting the layers of the BGVs in there. And then uh, and then he put his sauce on it. <laughs> yeah. Boy, did he. You know? Yeah, so, and I, and I think, and, unless I say that to somebody, then they're like, 
when I say this, I'm like, oh my God, that makes sense. Like I totally can hear Israel's influence in the song. I walked through some like unraveling moments of depression. So yeah, that just, he just, we, we wrote about where I was in life. There's so many people right now, so many who are walking away from the faith that they grew up in. And here you seem to be uh, walking a a different way of doing that. I think sometimes when people abandon it, it's a form of like being very extreme, you know, and the goal is to find balance. It's not to make this extreme decision and completely cut something out of your life because people disappointed you. My posture will always be that I will never let people cause me to walk away from a very important biblical foundation in my life, which is the gathering of believers. No matter what, I will ask the hard questions, but I just, I refuse to to walk away from him. I understand people wanting the church to look like the Church of Acts again. I think that's cool. I think I grew up with very strong voices in my life. Obviously, there there was a lot of religion and is a lot of religion that, that I'm letting go of. But I also make it a point to read the word. And, um, and if I have a question or if I'm angry at God to talk through it, I have been very angry and disappointed at God. I mean, it's so funny when the dust settles, you realize he's never the one at fault. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, so... It's, it's really just a, a day by day thing. I, I would rather say that I'm constructing mm-hmm. yeah. and growing and building on what, you know, on my, my foundational beliefs. But a lot of folks never had that healthy, dynamic, diverse, engaged sure. kind of spiritual formation that you were able to have because of your parents sure. and your, your, your type of community. So, so Absolutely. maybe some of them do have to tear something down in order to build the right thing. But I I just keep thinking about, you know, when Jesus says the wise man builds his house on the rock, the foolish man builds his house on the sand. I think there's a lot of people going, oh man, I built on the beach. This was a bad idea. (laughs) It's time to to take this down and find the rock, you know? I think sometimes things become trendy and the thing that my generation tends to do is just jump on and be like, yeah, I'm deconstructing. Um, And then you have people that are like, you know, deconstructing is the devil and you need to, but you just said some people need to deconstruct because what they have constructed is not at all the truth and or built on a firm foundation. And I absolutely agree with that. 
and and you're giving through your songs here and through your other social media presence you're you're offering something positive and constructive and i, I think that's to to be commended i really appreciate it i want every song to have the fullest life that it can have uh, in every environment that it is supposed to be living in. You know, I prayed and I said, God, I don't want to have to lay ministry down to do artistry or vice versa. I believe that you can allow me to do both because it's all ministry. Obviously, it looks different in this church setting. I can say more and do more from the stage and sometimes even pray for people. But I, I know that I'll have the opportunity to be in a secular setting. And I sing prophetically and spontaneously. I know that I'll be able to do that and sing what I feel like God's putting on my heart for someone. And I have done that at the end of like, hey, you, at the end of like, I try. Uh, and I feel the anointing and I feel God saying to people, I know you wrapped your identity up into what you can do, but it's not who you are. And you have tried to purchase love with it, but I already love you. Everything's gonna be Thanks so much, Doe. You can find links to her music and videos on the show notes page for this episode. I have a feeling there are more number one singles lurking on her incredible debut album. As I climb up on my soapbox here for just a couple minutes, I'm thinking about what Doe said about being left-handed in a right-handed world and about how Stevie Wonder has accomplished so much without the use of his eyes. Sometimes, it seems, discomfort or challenging circumstances push people to accomplish things that they might not have attempted otherwise. Why might that be? There are so many examples of massively successful artists who led with their weaknesses or quirks. Whether it's Bob Dylan's voice, or Phil Keggy missing a finger, the Ramones not knowing or caring about a fifth chord, or the members of U2 not even knowing how to play their instruments when they got started. There is often something magical about the frailty of our humanity and how that translates if we let it into great art. The thing is, we have so many technological tools and tricks at our disposal, we can fix, so to speak, all of that humanity. We can tune the vocals, hire more accomplished musicians, and polish music to a robotic sheen. But should we? Where is the line between getting a perfect take, but distilling the humanity completely out of a song? Most of us probably couldn't point to that line specifically, but many of us can tell when the human touch is missing. If you're an artist, I encourage you to think carefully about the humanity in your art. Lean into it. Be excellent, of course, but stay human. Stevie Wonder could have settled for being a hit artist singing other people's songs, playing it safe, playing the hits, but he didn't. He pushed himself, took risks, and created some of the most imaginative and influential albums of all time. 
Doe flipped her guitar upside down and messed with it until it felt right to her. She could certainly have taken a more conventional path and may have made it to the charts sooner, but she has stayed true to her left-of-center style, and her true-life songs about weakness, doubt, and faith are clearly inspiring thousands of listeners every day. If you're a fan of music, dig in deeply to those human elements. Let them resonate in your ears and heart. Notice them and support the artists who dare to sound real in this counterfeit world. I know that in my life, I have found great encouragement when I hear music that is transcendent but human at the same time. It gives me hope in the midst of a sometimes hopeless world. I have also found that this kind of music expands my heart, inspires empathy, and reveals the dignity and beauty of my fellow humans. Okay. I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. Thanks to Doe and to the folks at Life Room and RCA Inspiration for wrangling our crazy schedules. Thanks also to Aaron Smith for coming over to talk Stevie with me. You can find a complete list of all of the songs you heard on this episode on the show notes page, as well as other links and photos. I want to thank my partner in soul, Bruce A. Brown, for putting so much TLC into this and all of the other episodes. And thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song. Please make sure to sign up on the email list, listen and follow the weekly Spotify Gallery Stage Mixtape, follow us on Facebook and the rest, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and tell your friends about the show. And to all of our Patreon backers, thank you from the bottom of my heart. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT with a word of advice often attributed to jazz legend Miles Davis. Listen for the space between the notes. That's where the music is. Miles may or may not have made that suggestion, but it sounds like good advice to us. Peace. Over and over, again and one more time.